You're listening to the Rabbit Room Podcast. Visit us at rabbitroom.com for more information. You already know that Doug McKelvey is a brilliant and thoughtful and hilarious writer and filmmaker. You probably don't know how much he knows about cassowaries. In this episode of the Rabbit Room Podcast, Doug McKelvey wows Andy Osinka, Pete Peterson, and me with his knowledge of cassowaries, and then the conversation takes a surprising philosophical and theological turn. So we are at Northwind Manor, sitting next to the, what do you call this? A wood-burning stove. A wood-burning stove. Um, We have uh, Doug McKelvey, uh, a writer, filmmaker, and cassowary expert, um, and also just sitting in the circle is Andy, Andy Osinga and Pete Peterson. So, Doug, a lot of our listeners, including Andy Osinga, don't know what a cassowary is. Could you sort of fill us in? Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting because I didn't realize um, until fairly recently how most people in the United States don't have any idea about right. cassowaries because right. um, as a kid, uh, I spent three years on the mission field in Papua New Guinea. Okay. So being around cassowaries was just kind of a, <laughs> a way of life right. for us. Um, the cassowary is a, it's, it's, it's a bird that's related to ostriches, uh-huh. emus, um, but it, it's a bit more of a prehistoric seeming kind of bird. Um, they're actually lethal. Uh-huh. Uh, they have a, a four inch razor sharp spur on the back of their right foot, which I thought they, it was on its toe. It doesn't project. No, the no, front. no. Okay. It's on the it's on the back of the foot. Um, so don't sneak up behind one. Well, they they actually do a flying sort of front kick, um, and dis- <laughs> they, they disembowel. It was basically the the ninja of birds. Yes, the exactly, ninja exactly, bird. exactly. So uh, it's a fascinating so it's kind a of dinosaur bird. ninja bird. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and you have to be uh, well as the. I mean, most people at least have heard the um, the nursery rhyme. You know, when you were a kid um, that originated in England mm-hmm. um, back from the colonial days of be very, very wary of the bladed cassowary, oh, yeah. you know, and, and you know how it goes from there. No, I really don't. Are you being serious? Yeah. Can you recite some more of that? Sure. I've never heard that sure. before. Be very, very wary of the bladed cassowary, for he's lurking in the corners of the room. You, you seriously have never heard that? I've never this. heard that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds terrifying. Yeah, and he's waiting for the darkness, and his heart is very heartless. He pretends the nigh approaching of your doom. You've never heard that? Okay. Well. I mean, I heard it. I just, didn't, as a child, didn't know what a cassowary was. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, just, I just remember like the being haunted by those words. Be very, very wary of the bladed cassowary. Yeah, you know, just the and for most of us, it was an abstraction. But you in Papua New Guinea, yeah, yeah. So I actually, I mean, the, I mean, there's I, nothing abstract about a not at all cassowary going at you. And I, I didn't when you disturbed its nest, collecting its eggs. I mean, did you do that? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I I didn't I didn't collect the eggs. Okay. I mean that that would have been because you the height of the nurseryness, right? <laughs> yes, um, but I was around. I mean, sometimes you would be out, you know, having a, a little walkabout in the in the jungle area. I think that's Australia. And, I don't think that's Papua New Guinea. The walkabout. No, well, I, I use the term because the the, the actual term means walking there. about. Is from the native language, and it's ukarumba, but no one knows what that means, so it <laughs> translated to walkabout. Um, and you would, I mean, I mean, you would have to give them a wide berth. Mm. You know, I mean, it's a, it's an animal that you have to show some respect for. <laughs> I should, and it's so. It's it's actually a. It, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much you want me to tell you about cassowaries, how deeply you want You're, to get We're not even close to having gotten all I want to know about cassowaries. <laughs> well, so are there actually people in Papua New Guinea who are killed by cassowaries? Like, is there a, is yes. there a statistic for, like, cassowary deaths per year? There's not a statistic because so much of that doesn't go reported, just like crocodile deaths on the in the continent of Africa, that they estimate, but, you know, most... Most of them are never reported so, because they happen too far in the guess? interior. Okay. Um, I, no, it wasn't super high. I think it was something like 20, 24, 25, something like that. that That's they per estimate. year? Yes. What, is yeah. the, what does the cassowary do with its prey once it has <laughs> murdered it? <laughs> That's true. They're not carnivores, are they? They're, well, they're omnivores. They do eat um, – well, this is kind of interesting because they, they eat turtles – <laughs> After it ninja kicks the turtle. No, it doesn't. It actually has. Okay, so this is one thing about the cassowary. You know, birds have an egg tooth, what's yes. called an egg tooth, that protrudes right. from the top of the beak so they can get right. out. The cassowary is actually the only bird that has the egg tooth on the bottom of the beak rather than the top. Okay. Because the embryo within the egg, it develops with the head like laid backwards over the back uh-huh. in the egg and then it you know it it hammers the egg from the I underside think that would, that, that way. would make for a different psychology for the bird that comes out probably just so. leaping forward like that <laughs> but they they actually use that egg tooth as an adult to crack open the shell turtles. of the turtles, and you can you can you can hear it from more than a mile away. <laughs> really? Why don't they Just call the, it a turtle the sounding? They <laughs> <laughs> should at least call it a Wait, shell. Did you say you they reply both a mile Yeah, you away? can hear it. I mean, the, there's such. A, you can imagine the impact it would take to crack open a turtle shell. And like now, so turtles, when they write nursery rhymes for their children, <laughs> they're talking about the horrible egg tooth cracking that you can hear in the night. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I didn't know any of this. Yeah. And, and none of it is true, oh. of course. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> the, no, the spike on the foot is true. Well, it's not on the back of the foot. It's on the front, isn't it? Yeah. It's one, it's I, that's one what I thought. Spots. Yeah. So who's the cassowary expert now, Doug? Jonathan Rogers, apparently. Apparently. The, I, I believe the cassowary expert, as with any expert, though, is the one who presents their information with the most, with, with the greatest assumption of authority. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So is that statement true? 
It yes. sure sounded authoritative. <laughs> <laughs> the, the ground is shifting beneath me. <laughs> because I, I, I started to take you seriously when you said what you just said. So did you just make up well, that, well, that nursery rhyme? <laughs> Can you insert elevator music into the dramatic pauses when you edit The Piggly Wiggly music on, on uh, Raising Arizona inserted here. Yeah. Right. Um, Amazing. No, another thing about cassowaries, though, is seriously, it's the... Oh, just because you say seriously, we, we now believe you? It works for politicians. <laughs> <laughs> You no, can it, say what you want it, to say. Yeah, going to believe yeah, it. no, because this is an interesting fact that it's it's the species of bird where there's the greatest size differential between the male and female of the species. Okay. Um, the males are up to 150 pounds as a as adults, and the females typically don't get more than 60 pounds. So it's more than a, really? it's more than a two to one ratio. So that's kind of an unusual thing. Did you just make that up? Well, yes, but it is unusual, right? It's still an interesting fact, right? <laughs> True is, or not. It Despite its factness. Yeah. True or not. <laughs> I, don't even, I, I don't know where to go, to go with this conversation. <laughs> so are, are, are we to take from this that you are running for public office? <laughs> <laughs> I'd vote for him. <laughs> um... No, uh, that's. I, th- I think that's our our introduction, our segue into what we had wanted to talk about, which was this idea of of the myth of the expert. Ever since I was a kid, I've I've taken a, a delight in absurdity presented as fact, mm-hmm. and really appreciated various authors like Walt Kelly, who was also the the cartoonist who did the brilliant. Pogo comic strip. Yeah, set in Okanoki Swamp. Yeah, yeah. With alligators. Yes. And one anyway. And so I've, I grew up seeing the world of ideas and logic and different philosophies and the way people interacted with ideas as something of a playground. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't personally have any really coherent worldview. Uh-huh. <laughs> Okay. So it was all just it was all just a mishmash until I until I was older and um actually began to develop a more coherent worldview and to realize that that truth did matter and ideas mm-hmm. did have more serious consequences and, and ramifications than I'd previously thought. But I still retained this delight in in playing with with information and the creation of things that sound as if they're true when they're mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. As a young adult, um, had recently gotten married. My wife was attending graduate school for social work. This this notion of the myth of the expert and what we really accept as as an expert opinion and and the authority and the weight that we place on people who are considered experts in this or that and and how frequently absurd that actually mm-hmm. is really really came home to me during the time that she was in in school there um 
And she would say the same. Because what I observed was in her class, let's say there were 40 students. By the time they finished the two-year program there, any of them would be qualified to, with a, with a little more you know, on-the-job training, but would, once they put those hours in, would be qualified to hang a shingle outside a door that would say family therapist or, Uh you know, whatever kind of therapist, and to bill clients by the hour for therapy and would, would be considered an expert. You know, government agencies would refer people to them for counseling and and so forth. Some of them would be very good counselors. Some of them were intuitive people going into the program, and they would be intuitive when they came out of the program, mm-hmm. intuitive in terms of the dynamics of relationships and of you know how to how to help people face certain issues and 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 problems in their lives. Many of the people in the program were also just a mess mm-hmm. going into the program and when they came out of yeah. it. And in any case, they don't all agree. There's, there's a body of ex, there's a body of knowledge that even if they were all good or e- equally good or equally yeah. bad, they wouldn't even agree on that body of knowledge. True. It seems to me. I mean, true. They all have a shingle that says, I know something, but yeah. they don't know, I don't know the same thing as the person with this shingle over here. Right. So from, from that experience, just watching that and being horrified at the idea of some of those people being in a position where government agencies are now going to be referring children and families in crisis mm-hmm. to them as the expert, I just started looking at at how pervasive that notion is in our culture and of how we so we so readily accept that someone is an expert because they've been given some kind of credential exactly yeah because because that narrative is is put out there for us and so is that what what's a better model then if the the credential is not an appropriate way of looking for truth guidance wisdom whatever what is maybe i'm getting ahead of you but yeah it's a well yeah, ahead of me in terms of have I have I considered it from that angle? <laughs> well, I mean, isn't it, it, it is it possible that that the credential is a replacement for some sort of received wisdom or some sort of? Oh, I think it can be, and I would. I mean, you've been so much more involved in education uh-huh. that you could probably speak to that much more knowledge knowledgeably <laughs> easy for me to say um, than I could I mean do you, would you say there's a I mean with with some academics I mean it's just truly there are experts in some things yeah. but it's well, but we have a system that's set up where the title does not guarantee that someone's going to be an expert but it guarantees that they can be called an expert Right, right. Yeah, that's. I think that's true. Um, but the credential is there, like as a shortcut, or it's a replacement for a whole narrative that's happened, where other people are saying, "Hey, this person has demonstrated this expertise to us. We claim to know. Therefore, we're preventing or we're giving them this credential so that you don't have to go do all that research on your own." Obviously, that's not infallible, but it's there as a gatekeeping mechanism, right? To, to try to ensure that a person who has a credential because others who hold that credential have guaranteed it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Except that I've been on the inside of that process and I'm not convinced that it works. 
I don't, I don't, I haven't, you know, I've kind of seen how the sausage factory works. And I, I'm, yeah. I'm I think in, in any, in any world you have, you have a network of people who all know each other mm-hmm. and you work together. And typically inside that circle, everyone, typically there's a consensus that these guys know what they're talking about. Maybe these guys don't. And so inside that circle, you can know sort of who to trust. But I think from the outside, you're right. You have no idea where somebody else falls in that circle of mm-hmm. trust mm. and or friends. Yeah. yeah. I had a, I had a friend um, who was coming up on the end of her, you have, I guess, seven years from the time you finish your coursework to write your PhD. And she was coming on the end of it and, and just couldn't pull the trigger, couldn't, couldn't get the, the PhD written. I mean, sorry, the dissertation written. And uh, her advisor, she was, she was in her advisor's office kind of crying and, you know, upset and, and um, just was ready to give up. About that time, the bell rang for classes to, to change, and, um, and her professor pulled her out in the hallway and said, where all the students, professors were milling about, and he says, see that guy right there? He's an idiot. He's got a Ph.D. See that person? He can barely tie his shoes. He's got a Ph.D. And this person, you know, doesn't, doesn't know anything. Got a Ph.D. Mm-hmm. So you sit down and write your dissertation. And it was kind of all she needed. She says, okay, I can do this. And, yeah. Yeah. Right. Which may or may not be relevant to what you're talking about. No, it's I think it is. an anecdote, which nobody laughed at, I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, I just read an article. It was art- such a thoughtfully <laughs> I may amusing. have sent this to you, but I, I just read this article. It was, a, it was an academic paper that was a study of uh, people's willingness to accept pseudo-profound language as actual profundity. And they used as a, an example the tweets of Deepak Chopra, <laughs> one, of, one of which was, and the one that was the, the basis of the study, that the quote was, uh, attention and intention are the mechanisms of manifestation. <laughs> <laughs> and like, okay, maybe if I study that long enough, I can try to divine some kind of like wisdom out of that. But mostly it's just BS. <laughs> and that's what the, so the, the, the paper was, t- they had a computer programmed to spit out uh, grammatically correct sentences using highfalutin language. <laughs> and then they would put, they would take all these examples, including actual tweets by Deepak Chopra and, uh, and see if people could, t- could tell which ones were complete BS manufactured by a computer and which ones were things that actual people in the real world fawn over as deeply profound. And um, people couldn't tell the difference, wow. which was fascinating. So like, it, th- that's a case, I feel like, of this happening where somebody, because they are perceived as an expert or a wise you know, kind of uh, a person, uh, can say something and people will then look at it and divine meaning in it that may or may not even be there. So why do we, why do we so easily do that? Why do we so easily believe and accept the the phrase that that sounds like it might mean something if it comes from? I don't. (laughs) I mean, I don't think we all do. I mean, I think we're all in danger of doing it. But hopefully, you know, you as the more widely read and comfortable you are with what you actually think, the more willing you are to say, hey, I don't think this means anything, or I think this is wrong. And you may be wrong in saying that, but hopefully through discourse, you can arrive at the truth, yeah. rather than just accepting what other people say is truth. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I think it was you, Pete, who touched on the idea that, that the credential stands for a process that, 
that I can skip the process and look at the credential and say, this person must have gone, gone through the process. And there's some value in that. All right, I, I, can't, I can't check out every doctor I might go to and say, right. okay, i got a list of questions about anatomy that I'm going to see if you get these right. Because um, I'd have to Google those in the first place, you know, and that, that would kind of defeat the purpose. But the that that shortcutting mechanism is necessary, and I think there was a time a couple of generations ago when the short the the shortcutting was a matter of maybe tradition. Um, we said received wisdom, sort of communities. I mean, really, in some ways, a, a credential is makes community less necessary. Or defect or experts make community less necessary because I don't have to to judge based on what I know of, of you and you and you and and that that shortcut is a necessary thing but can also get really goofy really goofy being my imprecise language for I want the sentence to be over. <laughs> speaking <laughs> speaking of uh, the nature of authority, I, I just through Uncle John's bathroom reader the other day learned that prior to I think like nineteen ten or something. Like only about five percent of physicians in the United States had uh, anything beyond a high school education. Speaking of authority issues, so, so, so I mean, Uncle John's reader is your is my authority. basis for all authority. Well, Where I'm else are you going to learn about leeching? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I was just reading the bathroom reader myself and noticed that I saw a fact that was completely wrong. Yeah, I've noticed a couple of those. Yeah, yeah. but it's it's Fort, it said Fort Payne, Alabama has 150 sock factories, which it does not. <laughs> I've been there. How many does it have? It's like three. There's three <laughs> left. Maybe at one time there's 150. Uh-huh. But and this was 2005, and there weren't. Well, actually, isn't or there? Maybe six because you have to make the right sock and the left sock, and <laughs> yeah, those right. require different factories. Right? Yeah. Well, okay. So I got a question for you, Doug. You talked about truth as being kind of a playground for you. You talked about the, the switch flipped, and suddenly you began to take some things seriously. But with that view of, of truth, how do you settle on, okay, this is the truth that I'm actually going to, here, here are some bedrock truths that I'm actually going to build my life around. What, how did that happen? What, what does that look like for you? Because this was a very disorienting opening conversation we had. Even when I knew that you didn't know anything about cassowaries, I still thought some of that was true. So restate your question. So the question is, as, as a person who's, you're interested in the slippage between right. truth and authority and, and these sorts of things, and all of your writing is that's what's that your funny writing is funny because it plays in that in that slippage um, and we love it but it is a little disorienting and so for you you, you describe this as a lifestyle this this playing in, in that in that space between the truth and untruth and authority and all these kinds of things and so having knowing that about you how do you how do you decide okay well this truth actually there is no slippage here, and I can I can I can build a life okay. here. Well, I think it was a it was a, a slow build. I was fortunate enough during the the time that I was in college. It was actually a, a really leveling experience for me in terms of the things that I did believe, which was the things that I did kind of hold as 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 core truths at that point. But they were they weren't a, it wasn't a coherent system mm-hmm. of belief. And my experience during my years of college served to level all of that. And much, much of what I'm referring to was theological. Uh-huh. What do so, you mean level? I don't understand that verb in this case. That I, I had a lot of bad ideas, uh-huh. both ones that I had been taught and ones I had just sort of absorbed secondhand. And, and they, they just didn't hold together. It mm-hmm. wasn't... 
it wasn't workable, my framework, my theological framework, my worldview. It wasn't workable. My experience in college, um, because I, I ended up going to a college that was very much, at, the, at that point in time, very much the like the ultimate caricature degree of where my beliefs would have taken me had I continued to go down that road. So within six weeks of being there my freshman year, the wheels just came off. And it, it was a difficult experience because I, I didn't know what was true, but I suddenly realized that what I had thought was true wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up staying there for four years. And by the time I left there, everything I had come in with, except for the very foundational ideas, were gone. Mm-hmm. They had just been leveled. They had been proven in that, you know, it, it's it's like it was a being in the bubble of that subculture was like being in a laboratory of ideas where it was a living, you know, watching a living experiment play out uh-huh. um, of, you know, what my what my ideas would eventually what my beliefs would eventually take me to and would look like and it it was just so obviously not not workable not true not real so so I I came out of college just with all of that gone and not not quite knowing what I believed beyond a couple very basic ideas you know you identify those basic ideas yeah I mean I, I remember the um about halfway through my senior year, the last prayer that I prayed while I was in school there um, was something along the lines of, God, I still believe you exist, and I believe that that Jesus is your son, but beyond that, I, I have no idea what's true or how any of this fits or makes sense with my life. And what word do I use here? <laughs> The the erroneous ideas the uh, um, are are piling up so fast that I can't. There's no way I can filter through them. I I know I don't even have a foundation or a grid to filter any of these things. So if it's okay with you, I'm just going to check out for now and just get through these next few months and you know and try to survive wow. it. And then once I'm out of this place. You know, maybe we can talk again. <laughs> <laughs> it's not you, God. It's me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and that was that was what happened. Yeah. You know, it it was it was only after I had been out of that environment for some time that I reopened those lines of communication <laughs> with my Creator again. And you know, it, I mean, it it was. A, in some ways, a, a dark, oppressive four years for me. So confusing, but I see it now as providential because th- those, you know, it was like a faulty structure had been built yeah. on this bit of a foundation, and there was no renovating it. It just it had to come down and start over. And then. I found myself in Nashville in a place where, for the first time, I was in circles 
where there was this very thoughtful approach both to both to scripture and to um, to the outworking of scripture in in daily life in a coherent framework of theology that it was like for the first time I was hearing stuff that made sense and where I felt like I didn't have to be on my guard all the time Mm -hmm. wondering, okay, what percentage of what this person is telling me is true and what, you know, what stuff Mm -hmm. is, is false. And so slowly over a period of years, there was this foundation and this new, you know, this new grid, this new structure that, that was, much more thoughtfully put in place and that that I felt like I could largely trust. Yeah, yeah so that that was my experience. And so... Um, but l- let me say this in yeah. relation to your earlier question as well. What began to happen to me as a writer as I went through this process was that writing became so much more difficult because before... It was all about you know playing with ideas without being committed to any yeah. of them. Um, it was about the the sound and the feel of the words. Mm-hmm. But w- when there's suddenly this this other level that you have to consider of what's actually true, and of beginning to recognize that part of writing is being a steward of that, then I found that I could no longer just spit stuff out. Mm-hmm like I had always done my whole life and where I could just, I never had writer's block. I had never had writer's block up to that point because I I just had this youthful confidence that, Oh, I can sit down and write something brilliant. I can just spit it out. And now suddenly I I couldn't, I couldn't because it had to, it had to mean something Mm -hmm. that mattered. It had to line up with, with things that were, that, that were true. And, so for the first time in my life, I began to have doubts as a writer, and I began to have writer's block sometimes, and I began to struggle because with with these questions of how do you communicate grace somehow? How do you communicate a real moment of grace that has significance and meaning, but that's also worked that it also works on an artistic level and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, isn't just a attacked on thing, and came to understand what Walker Percy meant when you know, when someone asked him why his novels so often ended with the protagonist just on the verge at this point of seeming to be in a position finally where maybe they're about to accept grace on some level, mm-hmm. and why why he doesn't tell us that part of the story, why he leaves it there. And he said, when it comes to grace, I get writer's block. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I've never heard that. That's great. I just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doug, you, there was a time when, when you were writing, you had a facility writing because things didn't matter very much to you. There wasn't that much at stake in terms of ideas and, and truth. Um, and the kind of writing that came out of that was this sort of playful slippage. Um, your writing is still pretty playful, much of it. It seems to me, and you can tell me if this is right or wrong, it's as you have come to terms with realities that that aren't threatened by that kind of slippage, maybe you're okay with, with writing that way because you are ultimately, you're, you're standing on a truth that, that really isn't subject to that kind of slippage. Is that is that fair to say? That, that it yeah, I think to, so. I mean, it's... In other words, is is when you write things like the these 
ludicrous lists in the molehill and, and things like that, or DKM or whoever that person is, like, um, is, is that that's not backsliding. I mean, I assume that maybe that is backsliding. <laughs> is it the backsliding or is it something else? <laughs> Your, a, your story that's about a funny language. use of that term. Well, it's um, the question, like, what is the difference between having, <laughs> having fun with language and lying? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, I, I, think you, I think you're hitting on something there that, that, that I would say is accurate. That, that now it's still a, there's that playground, but it's not unanchored. It's not uh-huh. unmoored. And I think now I, I see that kind of writing in a context of of maybe in some way being more multi-layered than it was uh-huh. before that it's to me it's funny in a different way mm. maybe it's the difference in you know if if you're writing a movie and it just being a mindless comedy mm-hmm. that has a bunch of laugh out loud moments but falls apart in the third act uh-huh. because the story itself was just there as a vehicle for jokes. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, a comedy where the story does really matter and where you care about the characters, like maybe something like Little Miss Sunshine, mm-hmm. um, you know, as opposed to something like Dumb and Dumber. Right. You know, you're, you're going to laugh at parts of both of them, but... Dumb and Dumber just gets too ridiculous and falls apart in the third act yeah. because you know you don't really care how that storyline ultimately resolves. But Little yeah. Miss Sunshine, you you care, and so the the humor has this context that is a context that itself has more significance, mm-hmm. and. So it it just becomes a layer. It becomes a texture in the service of something else. Uh-huh. And so I I think for me, at least in the broader context of, of the different sorts of writing that I do, that um, that I, I see that kind of you know more absurd sort of writing in that context. But I also see it as having. I mean, it has some meaning to me whether it whether it does to right. anyone else in terms of performance art, maybe. Uh-huh. Um, and just the, the kind of the unspoken questions that it raises to throw something like that out there that even though, because I have this experience when, from other writers or, um, you know, or, or people who do this kind of, uh, that I find that I'm lulled by the, the style of the writing, the rhythm of it, the the presentation, or even more so if it's someone who's skilled in speaking these kind of true untruths in a in an NPR delivery <laughs> sort of voice, that even though you even though you start listening knowing that it's not true, you keep every so often being jarred by the the by remembering that it's not true because because I find that I'm so easily lulled in yeah. into that, yeah. which then raises sort of larger questions for me about, you know, why is that and the recognition that I'm so susceptible yeah. to that and how does that apply to other... You know, a great example of that is Fargo, uh, Coen Brothers movie, yeah. which uh, opens with this, you know, title card that says, the following is based on a true story, names have been changed to the innocent but not a single detail has been altered to honor the dead and it's all made up. 
Yeah. But because they open like that, like you believe a lot about that story in a whole new way than had you thought it was just purely fiction. Yeah. Right. Which is fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, the well, same could be said about Christian music. And that, how's that? And that you have, you use a lot of this Christian vocabulary, make things sound very nice, and maybe what you want to hear, but it isn't always true. And that leads a lot of people to think the wrong things about themselves or their faith that can be really damaging. And um, I think in all cases, all these things need to have some sort of uh, oversight mm-hmm. to make sure that, that the voices that people are listening to actually are valid. What kind of oversight? Would, would, well, would I don't know. Like? I mean, I think each, I think each discipline needs its own, whatever that looks like. I mean, if it's a, if it's a but college, it, it's a school board, you know, if it's, does the record company need a chaplain? <laughs> no, but I think it's people need to be educated. Yeah. You know, and people, I think that, but you see, it needs to be people who are educated. I think, I think the people, I think the people who are in charge of those things, like of those songs need to have some sort of understanding or need to be vetted for not just their skill in running a business, but also their understanding of theology. If that's the same, I would say if they're a Christian publishing house of books, if they're Christian romance novels, there needs to be some sort of theological oversight because I think a lot of things are said that sound true and that a certain group of people want to be true, but maybe aren't true. Because what Christian music, Christian books, these are marketing categories, not theological categories. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But it's just, it's, it's sort of an aside, but it's not, I mean, that's the world I live in, but I think it's the same. It boils down to the same question is why do do we trust something, you know, and what, what do we, yeah. How much time do we need to spend vetting the things that we let into our minds and hearts? And are there safe places where we can just accept or do we have to vet everything? Yeah. I don't know. Well, we're doing better, a better job here of raising questions than offering answers. I think for sure. Clearly maybe well, next episode we'll offer the answers. We'll, we'll call back. Actually, we're not going to call back Doug cause he doesn't tell the truth. <laughs> Season two, the answers to the questions <laughs> raised in podcast season one, yeah. which will inevitably be cut for budget. <laughs> well, I wonder if the antidote is community on some level. Mm. You know, clearly, and, and it is a it's a funny idea to have the the Christian Music Truth Commission. It's <laughs> <laughs> a house on activities to everything. <laughs> But our single will be Joseph McCarthy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I wonder if, w- with that, and you know, with any any category, any venue, any any place that we're putting stories out there, or you know, making truth claims in books or songs or, or whatever it might be, if it really is about that willingness to to live in community, to create what we're creating in community, and to willingly submit you know, those things that we're, that we're saying, to voluntarily submit those to others, um, and to listen to their voices, you know, to, yeah. to say, is, is, this, is this right? Is, uh-huh. you know, am I, you know, am I still... 
headed in the right direction with it. Is, is there anything, any caution you would have, mm-hmm. you know, on what I'm about to to put out here for for wider consumption? Yeah, yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks, Doug and everybody else for this time. This has been fun. Let's do it again soon. For more information about The Rabbit Room and The Rabbit Room Podcast, visit us at rabbitroom.com. The music on this podcast was composed and performed by Andrew Osinga from his album Solar Wind. <laughs>